And uh, this evening we are in chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. Hear God's word. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body, and therefore he was raised from the dead. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What is the message of the gospel? That is a question worth considering. Um, Is it the good news that is the good news that our God is not a just God after all, but a God of love who will save everyone? Well, that's not the gospel. That's the error of universalism. Is the good news that, is it that as imperfect as we are, we can try our best to be good and God will honor our best efforts? Well, that's the error of works righteousness when the Bible clearly teaches that no one is justified by their works. Is the good news that if we follow God's law and impose it on unbelievers, we will transform earthly culture and society into a heavenly society? Well, that's the error of equating the kingdoms of this world with the kingdom of Christ. Is the gospel the teaching of many today that if we will just submit ourselves to God and obey him, we will avoid the troubles of life? Well, that's the error of the prosperity gospel. The key to knowing and understanding the true gospel is to let Jesus Christ speak to us in his word. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 20 of the Gospel of John that the whole point of Jesus' ministry, including his giving of signs, is that people might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing they may have life in his name. In John chapter 10, verse 10, there Jesus reveals himself to be the good shepherd who has come in order that his sheep may have life and have it abundantly. And that wording reminds us of chapter 1 of Jesus, we are told, being full of grace and truth. And of how we as believers have from his fullness all received grace upon grace. And so the, the great question is how to have this abundant life how to have this fullness that is marked by grace upon grace. And I proclaim to you that the solution is to be found in Jesus. What you and I need and what the world needs is to listen to Jesus and let him tell us how to have this abundant life that he alone gives. For he is at the heart of the good news that we need. And this truth needs to be emphasized because there are a lot of people who think they have the abundant life of Jesus, but they're not really listening to Jesus. Instead of humbly listening to him, they are speaking. And they end up picking and choosing various aspects of his teaching and person that they like, and rather than listening to him, 
they impose their own ideas on him and turn him into the kind of savior that they want. The Jesus that they end up with doesn't match the Jesus of the Bible. They have the same perspective that Mary originally had there at the wedding in Cana when she thought she could dictate to Jesus what she wanted him to do. She wanted to think of Jesus as her son, who she knew could do mighty things, but she thought she could order him around and get him to do the things that she felt were important. And by addressing her as woman, Jesus reminds her of the fact that his relationship with her is beyond the earthly realm. He is, after all, her Lord and Savior, even her God. And she must understand that he has an agenda that is beyond her petty desires. And the good news is that he has come to suffer and die for sinners, and everything is to serve that agenda. Miracles are not simply a wonderful way to solve earthly problems. They're not about putting on a show of power to draw as many followers as possible. They are designed to reveal who Jesus is in order that sinners might seek him for the salvation that he came to earn. And as we've seen, there's a twofold response to Jesus' miracles. Some believe in him, while others choose to reject, and they even hate him. And Jesus knew this. And actually, one of the purposes of the uh, miracles of Jesus was to incite wicked men against him. His miracles were instrumental as a cause of him being put on the cross, which is why Jesus performed miracles according to his schedule. But people don't think of Jesus this way. They think he exists to meet their needs according to their dictates, according to their schedule. And they want him, but they only want him to the degree that he can fix their earthly problems. And when it comes to their spiritual problems, they have their own ideas about what Jesus wants and basically believe that if they are loving toward their neighbor like Jesus was, then they will earn favor with God. And so the Jesus that they form in their minds is often a distorted Jesus because they take one of his attributes and emphasize it to the neglect of others. For example, people want to think of Jesus as the Prince of Peace, the one come to bring peace, and they emphasize his loving and gentle nature and forget that he is also the King of Righteousness, King who will judge all men. And while they recognize that Jesus bears titles like Prince and King and Lord, they choose to submit to him only to the degree that they think they can get something from him. What I'm describing is that they've not really believed upon him. They've not really trusted in him as the Christ, which means God's anointed one and the Son of God. And the point is that we are to listen to Jesus because his coming is the good news. But only for those who submit to him, only to those who do what he says, we need to listen to him as he tells us why he came and what we are to do to gain the abundant life that he came to give. And early on in Jesus' ministry, as recorded here in these verses, Jesus is laying the groundwork of principles that will work themselves out in the rest of John's gospel. He is right away here setting forth who Jesus is as Savior and Lord, and the emphasis is that he is not to be trifled with. It must be clearly understood that whether or not you listen to Jesus is a matter of life and death. And this truth is set forth in these verses we are considering, which have as their theme, instructive destruction. The destruction here is in reference to what Jesus does to the business that was going on in the temple. 
There's also reference to a future destruction of the temple, which can be taken as either the building itself or the temple of Jesus' body. But in all of this destruction, Jesus asserts himself to be in charge. Those who would experience his blessings must put themselves under him and do what he says. And he has instruction here to which we are to listen. And so this passage on the theme of instructive destruction will be considered under three points. First of all, the context, the destruction itself, secondly, and then third, the instruction. As for the context, the events before us took place in connection with the Feast of Passover. And so Jesus belonged to that crowd of Jewish males, 12 years and up, who went to Jerusalem to celebrate. On the actual day of Passover, individuals had their Passover lambs killed at the temple, and then they would take them home for a meal meant to reenact that original meal that took place back in Egypt on the evening of the deliverance of God's people. The the Passover feast got its name from the angel of death as it passed over the homes of God's people while killing all of the firstborn sons of the Egyptians. The angel passed over all of the homes that, in obedience to God's instruction, had put lamb's blood on their lentils and doorposts as a symbol of faith in the atoning blood of the Christ. And it was this plague of the firstborn that finally prompted Pharaoh to let the people go. The name Passover also came to be associated with that seven-day feast of unleavened bread that immediately followed the Passover feast. It's this history and the ongoing religious celebration of Passover that was the immediate context for Jesus' cleansing of the temple. The problem that Jesus confronted was an irreverent use of the temple. It was being used to carry out business. And what had happened over time was that sellers of the animals used for sacrifice had set up shop in the court of the Gentiles. There were also money changers. Of course, people needed animals for sacrifice. It was not wrong for businessmen to sell animals to worshipers. And there was also a practical need for people coming from foreign lands to convert their money into the local currency or to buy their sacrificial animals as well as We understand this was the time of year that people would pay their yearly temple tax. And so the businesses that are described here were in and of themselves legitimate. What was wrong was to turn God's house into a house of trade. What was also wrong was to turn God's temple into a den of robbers. Now accusing these businessmen of turning the temple into a den of robbers is not what we read here in John chapter 2. I would point out that not everybody believes this is the case, but I believe that Jesus cleansed the temple two times, both at the beginning and at the end of his ministry. And you can research that. Um, Some think that John is simply putting an event that took place way later in Jesus' life here early on. I don't believe that's the case. I think that this is something that took place two times. And when he cleanses the temple again, just before the time of his crucifixion, We read in Mark 11, verse 17, Jesus saying, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And so the problem was twofold. First of all, business in the temple, right on the temple property, as well as unethical business practices on top of that. The main problem was that stalls with their animals and the tables of the money changers had been set up in the temple when it was to be a place of prayer, it was to be a place of worship, 
a place where people would call upon the Lord. The court of the Gentiles in particular was to be a place where Gentiles could come and pray. The Jews as a whole did not have loving regard for the Gentiles, and so it's not too surprising that they would allow the Gentile area of the temple to be overrun with business. And yet there's also the likelihood that all of the noise coming from the animals and from all of these business transactions would have filtered into the actual worship place of, where the, the, of the Jewish part of the temple. And then on top of this was the robbery of worshipers that was going on. There is historical evidence outside of the Bible that the religious leaders were in cahoots with these businessmen in order to skim some of the prophets. This makes sense, right? It would be the religious leaders who would have had to, have, to grant permission to these businessmen to set up shop. We also understand that it was necessary that worshipers would get priestly approval of each animal that was sacrificed at the temple. And we can understand the need for that to make sure that the animals sacrificed were without blemish. The problem was that the religious leaders soon saw the revenue potential of only approving the animals sold by their own vendors on site. Now certainly, in theory, people could buy animals elsewhere. They could even bring their own but with so many people coming large distances and with the uncertainty of priestly approval, people tended to buy the animals sold on site. And, of course, they would be sold at exaggerated prices. And then there were, there were, then there were the money changers who made a profit on each transaction. The animal vendors would insist that they would accept only local currency. The religious leaders would only accept taxes and offerings in local currency. And so foreigners were forced to exchange their money. And again, this was not necessarily a bad thing. You can understand how having a common currency would simplify the finances of the sellers and of those keeping track of the temple offerings. But the money changers had the advantage. And they charged more than was reasonable for a simple transaction. So this was all about gouging the Lord's worshipers and turning religion into a source of profit. And the Lord put an end to what they were doing. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He put an end to the abuses that were going on right there on the temple grounds. We're not surprised that the Jews, presumably the religious leaders in charge of the temple and its worship, reacted. What sign do you show us for doing these things? They asked the Lord. There's an interesting dynamic going on here. For on the one hand, these religious leaders had the authority and right to ask what Jesus was doing and what gave him the authority to do what he did. They were the ones in charge, after all, of the temple's activities. On the other hand, their question displays a complete lack of spiritual understanding and piety. If they were at all sensitive to the reverence that should belong to the Lord's worship, what Jesus did should have shocked them into repentance. But instead, they give no evidence of reflection over what Jesus did, or they give no evidence of any self-examination over whether what Jesus did was justified. We do know they were clearly offended by what he did. The Greek wording here indicating that they're not asking Jesus a simple question, but they're demanding an explanation. And again, it's not out of place that they would want an explanation. But what is odd is that since they are in charge, why don't they just arrest him? 
They had temple police who were there to ensure good order, who could have easily taken Jesus into custody, at least humanly speaking. The same basic question could be asked regarding the sellers and money changers giving in to Jesus' attack on their business. Why did they let one man do what he did? They couldn't stop him. Why didn't the businessmen band together and just beat Jesus up? Why did they leave? Why did they let Jesus get away with destroying their business, at least for a time? There's clearly more going on here than meets the eye. And this is particularly evident in Jesus' answer to the religious authorities when he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews' immediate reaction was to think of the physical building that was right there in its grounds. And accordingly, they respond to Jesus, it has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? You can almost imagine the chuckle that went along with that question. The temple that was existing then was the one built by Herod the Great. And he had begun working on the temple, we believe, clear back in 20 or 19 BC. And now at the time of the temple cleansing, it's the spring of 27 AD. And so a span of 46 years. And it's interesting to note that it wasn't actually finished until a few years just before it was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. So 43 more years. But note that in Jesus' answer, notice what he didn't say. He didn't say what he will later be accused of saying. He will be accused of threatening himself to destroy the temple. In Jesus' day, the destruction of a place of worship, even the desecration of such, was considered a capital crime. And imagine on top of the civil penalties, the blasphemy from a religious point of view of threatening to destroy the very center of God's worship. That's what the religious leaders will say Jesus was doing. They will twist Jesus' words in order to portray him as this ungodly man, this blasphemous man worthy of death. What he actually said is quite different. And there are two ways to take what he said. Both end up have, having basically the same meaning. The sense could be, if you destroy this temple, and, and the emphasis would be upon you, if you destroy this temple, or it could be when you destroy this temple. But either way, Jesus is referring to them as the destroyers of the temple. And this would be true in two senses that correspond to the physical and the spiritual. The physical temple would be destroyed in 70 AD. The spiritual temple of Jesus' body would within a few years be killed on the cross. And Jesus explained that in three days he would raise up the destroyed temple. The Jews took Jesus to be making the ridiculous claim, ridiculous in their minds anyway, that he could rebuild the temple in three days when it had taken already 46 years. Of course, as the very word of God, as the one who created all things, to have rebuilt the temple there in Jerusalem after its destruction would have been nothing for Jesus to do. But you understand that temple was never rebuilt. And this was not because of Jesus' inability to do what he said. This is because he had no intention of rebuilding that temple. The temple was destroyed in judgment. And it was just destroyed precisely because the Jews rejected the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and destroyed the temple of his body. But Jesus kept his word and raised up the temple three days after his crucifixion when he raised himself from the grave. Even the disciples didn't immediately understand that Jesus was talking spiritually. 
They didn't realize he was using physical things as types of their spiritual realities. It wasn't until after Jesus was raised from the dead that the disciples remembered that he had said this and believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So this brings us to the instruction, and there's so much instruction to be gleaned from this passage, that instruction that relates to worship, that relates to Christ and the gospel, that, re, that relates to um, the relationship, understanding the relationship of the temple to both. The first thing by way of instruction that grabs our attention in this passage is that the Lord has a message here for us regarding true worship. He is warning us against a number of abuses and distortions that can take place in connection with God's worship. There's, first of all, the basic problem of worship and the means of grace being used to serve our ends and our purposes. Now, we no longer have a temple with thinking of the the temple of that day with all of its furniture and ceremonies, but we still have houses of worship. We still have worship services. And the main problem that was taking place in Jesus' day still happens. The problem is people forgetting or ignoring the real purpose of coming together in worship, which is to glorify God. The assembling together of God's people was ordained by God for his worship. Yes, religious services are meant to be a means of grace, but what is this grace all about? Is it about us being encouraged and inspired and comforted? Yes, in part, but mostly the grace of being conformed into the image of Christ. The grace that enables us to recognize our sin and repent of it. The grace to look to Jesus for forgiveness and being assured by the Holy Spirit that Jesus' death and resurrection truly covers our sins and gives us fellowship with God. The grace to love and trust Jesus more. The grace to grow in our obedience to him out of a growing gratitude for his grace. The grace to recognize the great grace that God has shown us in Christ. Ultimately, the means of grace are about the grace of strengthening our faith so that we are consumed with the worshiping of our God. We come to worship to sing his praises. We come to hear him speak to us, and we pay attention because we want to hear his words. His words are important. We love what he says to us, even when he admonishes and rebukes us. And we come to pray because we have a relationship with him where we speak to him, where we tell him of our love for him, and we ask him for help with the things that we need in our daily lives. He's our heavenly father who cares for us, and he wants to answer our prayers. And yet the worship of God gets so easily distorted into something that is about us. It's still a problem that God's worship becomes perverted by a love of money. People worship God so that God will be pleased with them and bless them financially. Businessmen use church as a means of financial profit, using the the pulpit and conferences and books as tools of the trade to coat their pockets. And churchgoers come to church, and rather than focusing on God and his worship, they're thinking about their work and their bank accounts and their clients and even how to network with other members of the church so that many are thorny soil hearers of the word who allow the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches to choke the word, and they become unfruitful. It's still a problem that the church doesn't give loving regard to those outside of their normal circles. Now, we no longer have the category of Jew and Gentile, but there are the categories of rich and poor, of white and dark, of worthy and unworthy, 
that pervert what is to be an openness to all kinds of people engaging in worship together. It's still a problem that we lose sight of the reverence that is to mark the worship of God. Worship in our day has become casual. It has become laid back, even to the degree that people think that they can do in worship whatever they think is edifying. Forget that our God, and we tend to forget that our God is a holy God, infinite in majesty, who calls us to his worship, but as he does so, prescribes what that worship is to look like. Yes, there is a certain amount of freedom, but a freedom always within the form that he prescribes. His word reveals his house is to be a house of prayer. It is to be a house of Bible reading, of preaching and teaching, of fellowship, of singing, a giving of tithes and offering a giving of tithes and offerings and ironically a place of giving not of receiving money like we see going on in Jesus day anything that distracts from these things should be set aside and remember it takes concentration to worship god it takes effort it's work and we don't want extraneous noise and practices that draw attention to man we want a place of worship that is conducive to honoring our god we, like Jesus, then should have a zeal for God's house. John tells us what motivated Jesus to, clean, to, to cleanse God's house. It was zeal. It was enthusiasm for God, for his house as a place of worship, a place designed to honor him, a place centered around the gospel. Remember that the, sacram- the, the sacrifices and the ceremonies of the temple pointed to Christ. They pointed to his atoning sacrifice on the cross. In fact, John has just reminded us in chapter 1 that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrifices who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was rightly jealous for his own glory. We ought to have the same jealousy, the same zealousness that we would be appalled, actually appalled by anything in worship that would take away from our focus on Jesus as our Savior, the one worthy of our reverent worship. Now, so much more could be said about worship, but let's move on to the lessons here regarding Christ and what stands out in both the sign given at the wedding in Cana and now here in Jesus' interactions with these businessmen and leaders of the temple is Jesus' authority. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom. He is the divine source of all the good things that are worth celebrating. Jesus will not be told when to exercise his power, when to do ministry. And in our passage this evening, we particularly see the authority of Jesus on display as he sweeps all of the inappropriate business out of his temple. How did he get away with this? Why was he allowed to do this? Why didn't anyone stand up to him? Those are questions that are Interesting to, com- uh, to uh, contemplate, and some commentators have suggested that actually what happened in the temple is Jesus' second miraculous sign, because they would say there's no human explanation for why these people submitted to Jesus. Now, John doesn't call this event a sign, so I'm not listing it as sign number two. We believe that there were seven signs uh, in the first 12 chapters of, of John. Um, this is not number two in that list. But these commentators still make a good point. These businessmen and religious leaders must have sensed Jesus' power and authority and were intimidated into submission. Or Jesus just asserted his will over theirs and forced them into submission. 
But regardless, they submitted, though the submission was only outward and not a matter of the heart. Nevertheless, they were duly warned about who was in charge. Jesus, as the divine Son of God, is the one who from the beginning instituted the worship of the temple, ultimately the one to whom all of the worship of the temple pointed with its types and shadows. He had the absolute right to do what he did in cleansing that temple. It was his place of worship. In fact, what he did was predicted by the prophet Malachi in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 of the Old Testament prophecy of Malachi, which reads this, Behold, I, reads this way, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The Lord's coming, Malachi predicts, will be to restore true worship. And when Jesus appeared at the temple and cleansed it, he actually hinted at the fact that it would be destroyed. He was ultimately and primarily talking about the temple of his body, but all in the context of the physical temple. Clearly, he was assuming the physical temple pointed to spiritual realities. The temple really was one big type. The physical temple was never meant to be the main thing. Jesus' assertion that in three days he has the power to to restore a destroyed temple is certainly a claim that he has the right to regulate the practices there in the physical temple. For all only God and his Messiah would have such authority and power. And so the religious leaders were confronted with Jesus' authority. The question for them, the question for us, is whether we are going to submit to Christ, whether we are going to listen to him. We know what ends up happening with these religious leaders. They reject Jesus' authority, and they continue to abuse and to distort his worship, and ultimately their sin is judged with the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. They destroyed the temple because they pushed his hand, and in judgment Jesus was not going to allow them to abuse his worship. Plus, he had come and fulfilled what it stood for. It no longer served a purpose. God was not going to allow them to continue to use the temple to support their false worship. Not even the disciples, you see, at this point, understood all of the spiritual implications. And that should be encouraging to us. We don't know the scriptures and spiritual matters like we could and should. There are constantly things that we come to learn over time and It should be appreciated that the Lord is patient with us as he was with his disciples. But by God's grace, with the fuller revelation that we have, we understand the nuances that belong to Jesus' body being the temple. Because basically the temple is all about God dwelling with his people, coming together in fellowship, heaven and earth coming together. Jesus' body is rightly called the temple because the divine son of God took up residence in the physical body of Jesus. The Bible also says that we as believers, the church, are the body of Christ, for we are united to Christ in a spiritual bond of union by faith where he indwells us. 
by his spirit. And that is why we, the Bible says, and specifically our bodies, are even called the temple of God. And when we worship, we refer to our church building as the house of God because God meets with us in the person of the Holy Spirit. The book of Revelation, we could spend a lot of time in the book of Revelation in the context of, of John 2, but basically Revelation reveals that the fulfillment of the temple is going to take place in the new heaven and new earth when we are with God. He is, we are with Jesus, we are with the Father, we are with the Holy Spirit in perfect fellowship in the new heaven and new earth. That is the temple. We come back then full circle to the question of the gospel and what is needed if we are to experience God's good news. And what John is setting forth early in his gospel is the truth that Jesus coming to save us from our sins by fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system is the gospel. And that the only way to be saved and to experience the good news is to submit to him in faith. Meanwhile, there can only be destruction for those who reject his authority. To be saved, you must humbly submit and look to Christ by faith looking to Jesus, his person, and his work as your only hope. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and what a powerful warning this is that was delivered in the cleansing of the temple. Father, we are reminded of our Savior's authority, your authority, that worship is designed to honor you. That's to be done reverently out of an awareness of your holiness we understand that the worship of the old testament sacrificial system the tabernacle and temple was all about christ that he has the authority to decide what is to be done in that worship and the father we pray that we each one would recognize the lordship of christ that we would recognize that the gospel is all about him it's about his coming It's about his coming to save us from our sins, his coming to fulfill the types and shadows of the Old Testament. And Father, may it be the case that we are found as those who are humble and submissive to him, obeying him, listening to him, doing what he says, putting our faith and trust in him, repenting of our sins. And Father, we ask that you would spare us and spare us from many others, um, spare many others as well from Uh, the destruction that is also described here. Father, we know there is judgment for those who reject Christ. So may we be good witnesses, pointing people to Christ as our only hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.